Youth Podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, ABI's Deputy Executive Director. Late last month, the Executive Office for United States Trustees released its annual report for fiscal year 2012. The report sets forth the major accomplishments of the United States Trustees Program during the 2012 fiscal year and discusses several topics of interest for bankruptcy practitioners, including professional fees, executive compensation, and the National Mortgage Settlement. With me today to discuss the annual report and its implications for the future goals and priorities of the U.S. Trustees Program is Clifford J. White III. Cliff White is the director of the Executive Office for United States Trustees. He is a career civil servant and the longest serving director of the United States Trustee Program. After serving as acting director from May 2005, he was appointed as director in 2006. During his more than 30 years of public service, Cliff has served as deputy director of the USTP, an assistant United States trustee, a deputy assistant attorney general, and in other positions. Among Cliff's accomplishments as director, the USTP implemented the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act of 2005, launched an enforcement campaign to protect debtors against creditors and mortgage servicers who violate bankruptcy law, promulgated new attorney fee guidelines to eliminate premium billing and promote market-based billing practices, and designed strategies to ensure greater accountability by management of corporations seeking to reorganize under Chapter 11. Cliff has received two presidential rank awards, the highest recognition accorded to career officials, from President Bush and President Obama. He is an honors graduate of the George Washington University and the George Washington University Law School. Cliff will be interviewed today by our special guest, Kelly Bowden-Stapleton. Ms. Stapleton is a managing director with Alvarez and Marcel in New York and leads the firm's unsecured creditors committee practice. Ms. Stapleton is no stranger to the work done by the U.S. Trustee Program. In January 2005, Ms. Stapleton was appointed to serve as the U.S. Trustee for Region 3. As the trustee, Ms. Stapleton managed five state offices and was accountable for all bankruptcies filed in Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. She was responsible for hundreds of significant business and corporate restructurings, including Owens Corning, New Century Financial, Dura Automotive Systems, and Sharper Image Corp., working with distressed companies, creditors, and lenders. In addition to the annual report, on June 11, the EOUST released its much-anticipated new fee guidelines in large Chapter 11 cases. So, Kelly, since we have a lot to discuss, I'll hand over the microphone to you. Thanks, Amy. Uh, and Cliff, I'm really happy that we have this chance to sit down and talk about all the good work the United States Trustee Program has been doing. Um, before we start, I just want to congratulate you on the only thing other than maybe your grandchild I know is more important to you than the program, which is, of course, the Red Sox. Yes. Being tied for the best record in the American League and first in their division. That is, I am so glad you brought that up. I think we should devote the rest of the podcast uh, to a discussion of baseball. <laughs> well, I look, I know that colors your mood significantly. And to be honest, I obviously checked their record before I agreed to host this podcast. Um, so now that we've established you're in a good mood, I think we can get to the meat of it. Okay. Um, this is, of course, the United States Trustee Program's annual 2012 report. And with all the press you've been getting lately, I'm thinking it's starting to rival the Warren Buffett report and making it the most sought-after annual report in America. On that note, when did you start publishing the report? We issued our, we issued our first annual report in fiscal year 2001, so why? about 12 years ago. Okay. Well, we thought that, that we should better inform the public about our activities and major accomplishments over the previous year because a large part of our mission is, after all, to promote transparency in the bankruptcy system, and we hope the annual report uh, helps us do that. Okay, and who gets it? Uh, who's it distributed to on an annual basis? We distribute it primarily to the bankruptcy community. Now, we used to print a limited number of copies, hard copies, for bankruptcy judges, private trustees, various constituencies, and our own staff, but this year we did not do a formal printing at all. Uh, although the report, along with all previous reports, is posted on our website. Instead, we've asked our offices to send a, a link uh, to, the, uh, to the report to those in the local bankruptcy community uh, who might be interested. I like that. That's very environmentally conscious. Um, and, and, and it helps with the budget as well. That's great. Am I correct that it's the 25th anniversary of the program this year as well? It is. Uh, 2013 uh, is the 25th anniversary of our nationwide expansion. The last region was certified uh, in 1988, so next year's report will be the 25th anniversary report. 
Okay, well, happy anniversary, and um, let's move on to the highlights of the report itself. Can you just walk us through what the annual report tells us? Well, in, in a nutshell, I think the annual report uh, tells the story of the U.S. trustee accomplishing a lot of work in taking consequential actions in a number of areas to enhance the integrity and efficiency of the bankruptcy system. We take about 50,000 enforcement actions a year, including those that don't require formal court action, for monetary impact from debts not discharged, fees denied or disgorged, penalties, that sort of thing, totaling more than a billion dollars. So over 10 years, we've taken as a program almost 600,000 actions for a dollar impact of more than $12 billion. And those dollar numbers don't take into account many of our most important actions, of course, such as seeking the appointment of Chapter 11 trustees. Okay, so sort of taking us, uh, taking us through the report and the goals that you set, do you feel you're accomplishing your goals on a yearly basis? Yes, I'd say a resounding uh, yes. I, I wish I could say that, that more loudly because I do think the report tells the story of a very talented staff in, in the field who not only do our core work well, but we also are able to maintain a focus on, on key priorities to add value to the bankruptcy system. And when you're talking about key priorities, um, can you kind of take us through any changes that you've seen in the direction of the program? Yeah, I think as a general matter over the past decade in particular, we've worked very hard to move beyond a more ministerial approach to case administration. And we've tried to emphasize our role as an enforcement agency and as a litigator in order to better address emerging fraud, abuse, and other problems in the bankruptcy uh, system. And the 2005 bankruptcy amendments uh, caused us to accelerate those efforts. Okay, and maybe if you could just point to a few of the things in the annual report that most people might not know you're actually doing. I know your signature achievement would be the National Mortgage Settlement. That certainly merits a little conversation. Right. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to comment, comment on, on that, because I do think we have a, a very, very wide range of responsibilities, and, and few in the bankruptcy community probably have reason to know about the full breadth. Uh, you mentioned the National Mortgage Settlement, and, and that certainly is what we consider to be the signature achievement uh, of the program. Uh, that was a, uh, a federal state settlement with the five largest mortgage lenders. Uh, among other things, that settlement uh, not only provided uh, redress to homeowners who were uh, improperly treated uh, with regard to foreclosures or loss mitigation efforts, but also and maybe of greatest significance to the bankruptcy uh, system. Uh, it instituted a new set of standards for mortgage uh, servicing, uh, including the servicing of home loans of Chapter 13 uh, debtors. And as the Attorney General had noted when the uh, mortgage settlement was, was announced uh, a little more than a year ago, the, the program's literally thousands of investigations and enforcement actions uh, painted a picture of servicer conduct that was badly in need of reform and was, was instrumental to achieving, uh, achieving the settlement. More recently, going beyond the mortgage settlement, more recently, I, I hope that Chapter 11 practitioners uh, are aware of our new attorney uh, fee guidelines for large Chapter 11 cases, and perhaps later we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more uh, about that. But the breadth of our work does go well beyond those, those important initiatives, which have, which have been, I think, fairly and widely covered in, in the bankruptcy uh, press. Uh, it sometimes seems to us consumer lawyers think all we do are consumer cases. Large Chapter 11 lawyers think we spend all our time in, in big cases. But in fact, our, our role is to, is, is to cover the, the range of, of cases filed in the bankruptcy system. In many ways, we have a bird's eye view of the system as a whole. So while we carry out our mandatory responsibilities, such as uh, ministering the means test, filing motions to dismiss for abuse of Chapter 7, we also look for other areas where we think we're uniquely situated uh, to, uh, to add value. So in the annual report, we outline as many of those major responsibilities uh, as, space, uh, as space permits, and, and I'll tick off uh, a few of them uh, that give you a flavor and that are reflected in the report. We supervise private trustees who uh, in 2012 distributed about $11 billion 
From our end, that means we review more than 150,000 case reports a year, conduct hundreds of uh, reviews of trustee operations and, and other tasks that go into the oversight of trustees. We approve about 450 credit counselors and, and debtor educators each year. We make criminal referrals to law enforcement, more than 2,000 uh, last year, and help prosecute some of those cases through our attorneys who are cross-designated in, uh, in some districts as special assistant U.S. attorneys. And what often is not fully appreciated is we participate in about 150 appeals each year to the district court, circuit courts of appeal, uh, or even to the Supreme Court. And we work closely here in the department with the Solicitor General's office on Supreme Court cases involving bankruptcy, even if we didn't participate in the courts below. So, so that kind of uh, gives you a, uh, an idea of the, of the breadth of responsibilities that we tried to reflect in the report. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. Um, and sort of when you're prioritizing that, um, Obviously, when I asked you if the U.S. Trustees Program was accomplishing its goals, it was a resounding yes. How does the program identify new goals on a yearly basis? Well, does I think it? it? It does, and I think it's important to, to try to identify goals on an annual basis and to assess where you are and where you want where you want to move, because we try very, very hard to be a high-performing, results-oriented uh, organization. So although from year to year we'll maintain a steady course on many of our activities, including some uh, priorities, we, we do need to change goals uh, as, as external uh, events uh, dictate, uh, needs of the bankruptcy system uh, evolve, and so forth. I describe us as at least from a national perspective, as a national program, having three essential uh, uh, priorities, and this is in the broadest of strokes I, I describe these. First is to carry out our duties under the code with prudence, discretion, and sound judgment. And that captures our responsibilities under the means test, the kind of routine objections to retention applications or disclosure statements that we file, and other core responsibilities. And beyond that, in the consumer area, we have adopted as a priority uh, to protect consumer debtors against abuse by creditors, bankruptcy petition preparers, other third parties. And in the business reorganization arena, uh, we seek greater accountability by management and professionals. And that's where our efforts to seek trustees and examiners uh, to limit executive bonuses to statutory limits and uh, to bring greater rationality to the professional fee review process uh, comes in. Okay. Now, Cliff, how does the United States trustee program decide on its priorities each year? I would say we look at, at three basic sources. Um, first, the U.S. trustee program itself. Uh, the needs of the bankruptcy system, nationally and locally, are a constant source of discussion and feedback among the top leadership of the program. The U.S. trustees who supervise the regions, together with the senior staff here in the D.C. headquarters, provide a constant stream of information. Uh, on, on, on where we ought to be looking to uh, make a difference in the bankruptcy uh, community from year to year. It's equally critical that all levels of staff, from the trial attorneys in the courtroom to the financial analysts to the paraprofessionals, tell us what they're seeing on the ground level. Second, we also look to the broader bankruptcy community. Now, we invite advice from trustees, judges, and other practitioners. Local offices have to decide how to apply national priorities in the district in the most effective way, and also to address local bankruptcy community problems that may not be covered by national priorities. So the best practices of U.S. trustees and the assistant U.S. trustees in the field uh, in, in, in coming up with these uh, priority um, uh, ideas is to talk to local judges and others to identify emerging local issues. I remember myself many years ago when I was an assistant U.S. trustee in Maryland deciding to tackle the issue of bankruptcy petition preparers who were scamming debtors out of thousands of dollars through a variety of credit and mortgage repair frauds. Then Chief Judge Manis and Bankruptcy Judge Keir in the District of Maryland pointed out to me uh, some of the problems they were seeing in Chapter 13 cases, and from that um, I decided that this was an area where our local office could, could help tackle the problem, and that's what we did. So, And then I'd take a third source. So if the U.S. trustee program itself is a source, uh, if the broader bankruptcy community is a source, so too is the Department of Justice. 
Uh, we're very proud to be a part of the Department of Justice. It is the greatest law firm in the world. Now, unlike other parts of DOJ, we don't represent the government as a creditor in a case. But our status as a component within DOJ gives us an opportunity to work with law enforcement and to partner with other components to attack broader issues. So our leadership in the mortgage uh, area, for example, which had begun in 2007, certainly accelerated a great deal when the Associate Attorney General uh, in, in 2011 asked us to play a leading role in seeking a national settlement with the five largest mortgage lenders. In a similar way, our recent fee guidelines, which were announced by the department, uh, with a statement from the acting uh, Associate Attorney General Tony West, I think helps shows the importance DOJ attaches to our role in the bankruptcy system. So in, in arriving at that priority and executing on that priority of the fee guidelines, we were strongly encouraged all along the way by the DOJ leadership to address uh, the issue of professional fees, and, uh, and, and we issued those guidelines uh, uh, with DOJ's uh, strong support. I'd like to move on to one of the sexier topics out in uh, restructuring right now, which is executive compensation. Uh, as you know, there's been a fair amount of press coverage about the program's efforts to limit executive compensation. And, you know, my reading of the annual report shows that the courts sustain your objections less often than they do others. And I wondered why you think your success rate is lower with regard to executive compensation than for other types of motions. Sure. And first, with regard to the way you posed the question, our efforts to limit uh, executive compensation, that's correct, but it is only to limit it to the statutory um, uh, limitation. So it's not as if we, as a policy matter, are, are, are making some judgment as to what the compensation or bonus structure ought to be. Instead, we're trying to enforce compliance with the policies that, that, that Congress adopted and that are reflected in, in Title XI. Um, in the issue of executive bonuses, it's one of those areas where we are often the only party who is in a position uh, to object, or at least the best position to object. Um, Congress has restricted bonuses during bankruptcy. The debtor company, its largest creditors, and the lawyers employed in the case cannot supersede that congressional limitation. And we think that we have an important role to vindicate the integrity of the statute, to vindicate that public policy, again, passed by the Congress and signed by the president. So it's important we raise the issue because bonuses, for a number of reasons, foremost is because it is vindicating the integrity of the statute, it also can have a financial impact on the estate. And bonuses certainly impact public confidence in the fairness of the bankruptcy system. I mean, after all, when a company proposes to pay large bonuses to insiders at the same time that employees are laid off, retiree benefits are slashed, and creditors take pennies on a dollar, somebody has to step in and enforce the law. So the limitation on executive bonuses is something that all bankruptcy policymakers not all bankruptcy practitioners, but all bankruptcy policymakers agree on, and our job is to vindicate the policy as embodied in the statute. Now, you are quite right, Kelly. We prevail uh, less often in court on, on, on our objections to bonuses than in other actions. We're well over 90% uh, success rate on most complaints, motions, objections, but less than 70% in bonus cases. So although we may be in the best position as I say, to be the one to enforce the statute to litigate, they are hard cases to litigate because we are going to always be at a large information uh, deficit. In addition to that, there's always a time urgency. Frequently, the proponent of the bonus rushes in and says, we need an immediate decision or we'll have some catastrophic brain drain. So, and sometimes the initial motion filed by the proponent is somewhat bare bones, and then the debtor will appear in court, make some modifications, maybe with an expert in tow, to show the modification meets statutory standards. So as a matter of just the way the litigation plays out, they're often difficult to, um, they're, 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 they're difficult, uh, to, uh, to litigate. But we're not at all discouraged. And in fact, uh, we've won some very important cases, especially uh, recently. We think we're making a great deal of, of progress. And courts have issued some decisions that provide some important reasoning 
that I hope will cause bankruptcy lawyers to think a little longer, a little harder, uh, before coming in with bonus proposals that don't comport with the statute. Well, I have a few theories of my own on uh, why some of these motions don't uh, get granted as much as your other motions. And I just wanted to run them by you and see what you think, okay? Sure. I'm, um, I have had the pleasure of working a lot with the U.S. Trustee's Office, especially in Delaware and in the Southern District of New York, and I find uh, the staff there very helpful and um, very upfront about what they're looking for in terms of executive compensation and what sort of benchmarks need to be met, and that for the most part, on, on every case I've had, it's been worked out before we've ever had to take an executive compensation issue to a judge. Do you think that might be one of the, one of the reasons that your, your motion rate isn't the same as for other types of motions? Well, we do try very hard with, with, with most kinds of actions to work them out. And in bonuses, given the fact they do tend to be uh, so fact-sensitive so fact, uh, that, uh, indeed, we do try to work them out. Um, and the success rate we have uh, in court would therefore reflect it's only the toughest cases that are actually going to go uh, to the judge uh, uh, for for decision. But I think you make a very good point. Uh, it is with regard to executive compensation. If it's possible to work it out, uh, we can't look the other way when the statute's being uh, violated. But um, but but working things out and and getting the cooperation of the proponent to make necessary modifications often is uh, is the solution that. That allows the uh, uh, the case to the case to move forward without being mired down in additional litigation, which is really the last thing uh, any any case can benefit from is more litigation. So we try to we try to do that, and I'm glad your experience is that we that we do that rationally and prudently in the districts where you practice. Well, and and I thank you for that. Um, my other theory is that Congress clearly had a similar emphasis on executive comp when it revamped the bankruptcy code in 2005. Um, you and I have both been quoted extensively on this, and you know we, when it disallowed the so-called CURP, rewarding executives for simply for staying around, and then mandating that these executive compensation programs instead incentivize employees to perform and be evaluated according to performance metrics. And my question to you is if you've noted positive changes since Congress addressed that issue in BAPSIPA. Yeah, I lack empirical data to provide to you, but I do have a sense and, and anecdotal uh, information that there is a, a greater discipline, I think, uh, you know, by companies in bankruptcy, um, not only in the decision whether to seek bonuses, but also in the terms of the bonuses uh, uh, compared to, to prior to 2005. So I think there is, there is a, a greater discipline. Having said that, I still think that there's too much effort expended sometimes in trying to evade the requirements of the, uh, of the bonus restrictions rather than fashioning bona fide incentives that, if met, would benefit the entire estate, which goes to the point you were making earlier, Kelly, that if, uh, if the proponent uh, is, is willing to modify the terms, uh, work with our office to, uh, uh, to develop terms that do comport with the statute, uh, that 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 sometimes can work, and more effort in trying to work that out rather than in trying to find a way around the statute. I think would would benefit the estate and lead to greater judicial economy. I also wonder if, in the larger cases where you have um, a very active unsecured creditors committee who is fighting that that you say bonus, I say executive compensation fight, um, that you may have less trouble than in kind of a smaller Chapter 11 where you don't have um, a group fighting for the unsecured creditors so assiduously. Interesting point. I just don't have data that compares a case with an unsecured creditors committee versus without an unsecured creditors committee. Moving on to probably the highlight of today's podcast is the professional fee guidelines. Okay. And there's been a lot of talk about that. I know, you know, you've had a several notice and comment periods. You had a public meeting on June 4th of last year, and you also had um, a call on June 11th of this year to talk about these guidelines. 
um, the annual report describes the process for developing the new fee guidelines for attorney compensation in large Chapter 11 cases. And can you just tell us in a nutshell what the new guidelines provide? Sure. I appreciate the chance the chance to do that, and I also appreciate your description of the fact that we we tried to um, uh, to administer a very open process to get information from the experts uh, in the bankruptcy law firms and in the bankruptcy community and to make modifications in the guidelines along the way so that what was finally uh, published just a short time ago as the final guidelines uh, do reflect uh, many of the comments that we received. What we're trying to do, in, in essence, here is, is, is to ensure statutory standards for professional compensation are met and to do that through a more transparent, market-based, and client-driven process than currently exists. Now, the major features of the guidelines, and I'll, you know, let me list five or so, um, uh, I, would, I, would, I would identify as follows. Remembering, of course, that these, that these guidelines, this iteration of the guidelines, applies to only the larger cases, those with assets and liabilities that each are at least $50 million. Uh, perhaps the cornerstone, the most significant uh, change uh, in these guidelines compared with the earlier guidelines from 1994, is that we ask for disclosures that show that the rates being charged by the attorneys reflect the market rates outside of bankruptcy, because that's what the code requires. And we suggest that this should be accomplished through disclosure of blended rates outside of bankruptcy, which can account for non-hourly alternative rate structures, take into account discounts and so forth, so that we can compare the rate being proposed in the bankruptcy case to the rate that's really being charged uh, outside of bankruptcy. So it's an apples-to-apples comparison, make it easier for the court, the U.S. trustee, and parties to see if the statutory standard that market rates, but not above market rates, are being charged second important feature is the use of budgets and staffing plans. We think that's important because they can serve as a benchmark. And in the guidelines, we say that our offices will ask for a special showing if the budgets are significantly exceeded as the case goes forward. Budgets are common throughout the legal practice except in bankruptcy. So we hope budgets will become more the norm uh, in bankruptcy uh, as well. We, a third item that is of some significance is we ask for disclosure of rate increases during the bankruptcy. Uh, as we looked more carefully at this, we saw that in some large cases, you could have 10% of the total fees being charged during the life of the case attributable to escalating rates uh, and escalating uh, rates that exceeded inflation or exceeded uh, increases that, that, were, that were being charged outside of bankruptcy. Fourth, we asked for submission of records in an open, searchable, electronic format. That's simply a modernization of the guidelines so that, uh, so that the courts, the U.S. trustee, other parties can, uh, can, can evaluate the data in an automated fashion. It's, it's much easier that way. We, we suggest greater use of fee examiners, which I think can be important, uh, uh, important uh, 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 actors uh, to, to look at uh, not just technical violations, but also the ultimate reasonableness of fees given, uh, given what was required to be done. And I'll mention a final one and then I'll stop. But we also suggest a greater use of efficiency counsel uh, so that the, the, the general counsel in a case, the main counsel, would also employ, and we would not object to the employment of a second co-counsel from a smaller or boutique law firm who could handle what I'll call, call commoditized tasks, such as claims review at a much lower cost than the larger uh, law firm might otherwise uh, charge given its, um, its, its infrastructure uh, as a firm. So those are just five or six of the, the major features of, of, of the guidelines. And, I, like and that. I, I like that last one particularly. That's something that I employ currently with my professionals anyway. You know, so. I think it. I, I think it can work. I think it can work quite well, and, and it's, it's used in some places. Um, but but I hope it, it is it is used uh, more widely because uh, a firm might be needed as general counsel to handle the most complex pieces of a case. But there are also 
less complex pieces of, of almost any case, and there are other law firms that can do that very, very well with a lower cost structure, lower rates, less cost to the estate. Okay. I agree. I agree with that. Um, tell me when these, law, these uh, guidelines will go into effect. For cases filed on and after November 1st, 2013. And where are they posted so that any of the audience can take a look at them? Sure. They're on our website, which is www.justice.gov slash UST, www.justice.gov slash UST. You can find them there. They were also published in the Federal Register and eventually will be published uh, uh, and, and codified in the Code of Federal Regulations. Okay. So nobody can say they didn't have access to them. They might still say it, but they do have access to it. And Cliff, let me ask you, and maybe, maybe it's obvious, but why did you decide to issue the new guidelines now? What well, was I it mean, about well, the cases they, that are filing these days? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. They, the guidelines were initially issued uh, per, per, per statute, uh, statutory mandate, back in 1996. So that's, all, that's an awfully long time uh, without being updated. And we thought they needed to, to reflect uh, so many changes in the legal industry and in the bankruptcy uh, practice. Uh, billing structures uh, have changed uh, inside and outside of bankruptcy. Uh, modern law office practices, um, I think, cause billing uh, practices uh, to be different. And also, beyond that, beyond the fact of, of modernization, I think with some justification there's been a growing view um, that bankruptcy uh, lawyers were not demonstrating that what they were charging was the same thing they were charging outside of bankruptcy. Um, I think it's pretty well accepted that in the legal industry, clients often outside of bankruptcy ask for discounts and other cost-saving measures. That's what corporate clients impose on their lawyers. But those, those kinds of, um, of cost-saving measures are not the norm in the bankruptcy practice. The code calls for bankruptcy lawyers to be paid market rates, be paid what lawyers outside of bankruptcy are paid. It doesn't permit premiums. It doesn't permit bankruptcy lawyers to charge more than they can charge their clients outside of bankruptcy. Now, I think there has been a widespread concern about bankruptcy professional fee practices, and we've seen it. We've seen it in public commentary, not only from the, the general public, but also from sophisticated participants in the system. And I, most recently, I'm thinking of uh, Wilbur Ross, a pioneer in buying distressed companies out of bankruptcy. Uh, for example. Uh, gave a statement, testified before the ABI's commission to study the reform of Chapter 11, where he talked about the need for reform of professional fee practices. Uh, and also, the CEO of, of a turnaround firm testified at that same uh, ABI commission field hearing. And that person testified, uh, uh, and I've got a, I think this is a, a quote, there's little or no discipline in mega cases. So I think even sophisticated uh, pra uh, participants in the bankruptcy system felt the need for there to be changes in the bankruptcy and the professional fee review process, and hopefully those guidelines uh, help alleviate at least some of those concerns. And I know um, we talked a little bit about the opportunities you gave for comment. Um, what's the reaction been? Well, I think during the process, we were, we were quite pleased. As I say, we tried to conduct a very open and transparent process, twice publishing drafts for public comment, holding a, a public meeting. And we received a number of comments, some general, some specific. Uh, in the statement uh, that we issued when the guidelines went final, uh, we, we specifically uh, commended the National Bankruptcy Conference, a very prestigious group of, of, of the top uh, lawyers uh, in our profession, uh, who, who provided uh, two sets of extremely thoughtful uh, comments. and they, did, they spent a great deal of time on it. They developed concrete suggestions, and we adopted uh, many of their, their suggestions. Um, now, the guidelines were just issued uh, several days ago, so I, I've had uh, limited uh, feedback on, on the final uh, version. 
Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of time for additional reaction. Uh, some have noted that there were no major surprises from what we had last published. So I think that the practitioners, uh, there, were, there were no major deviations from what people have been expecting uh, for a period of, of months now. And I have heard uh, some very some, some favorable comments, but there it, it hasn't been a whole lot of time for reaction. Uh, so we certainly are going to keep our ears to the ground and, and try to reach out to the to the bar to explain the guidelines and uh, and to try to understand any residual concerns there still may be. And, and speaking of which, how big a challenge do you think it will be to enforce these new guidelines? Well, as given how lengthy and open the process we followed in writing the guidelines was, we think that this is about as close to a consensus document as one could produce without sacrificing meaningful improvement. I mean, clearly some would prefer we, we hadn't made changes. I think the pr- practitioners uh, are, will find the guidelines to be reasonable, and the compliance will not be onerous. And I think the whole fee approval process, as, as it unfolds under the guidelines, can become much more efficient because more information is going to be available to parties, the U.S. trustees, and the courts, so determinations about the reasonableness of the fees can be made more efficiently. So I really don't think we're going to run into too many issues of ability to comply. That's certainly what we hope. But we're going to engage in outreach to the bankruptcy community. We want the bar to be aware uh, of the guidelines and, and, and to help and explain where we can, uh, how, they can be, how they can be complied with. Now, I think practitioners are also going to benefit from the fact that you, we should see through this process increased public confidence uh, in the system uh, as well. So, so I hope people will see benefits, have more incentive uh, to comply. Now, if we don't get the information that, that, that the guidelines call for, um, we will object to see applications that don't comply on grounds that the applicants failed to meet its burden of proof. But we're also going to suggest to the courts and have suggested to courts that they consider adopting the guidelines as local rules in whole or in part, as some of them did with the earlier guidelines. That would help us further ensure professionals are more likely to comply and and understand the guidelines. And consistent rules that are substantially similar across the country uh, will lead to greater efficiency and, and, and effectiveness. Now, the guidelines are, after all, a statement of what the U.S. trustees will expect to see. Uh, and, and if we get this information and analyze it, that can avoid objections. But only the courts can sustain objections that we make. So we hope the courts will find the guidelines worthy of adoption in some form. Um, but in any case, where we don't get the disclosures we think are necessary in order for the proponent to prove the fees are justified and it's the with the burden of proof, uh, where we don't get that information, we're prepared to object and, and to appeal any adverse decisions as, as necessary. But I do want to hasten to add, and I hope all bankruptcy professionals who read these will read these carefully and, and note in there, the guidelines themselves provide flexibility so that we can prudently enforce the disclosure provisions. Uh, they have to be consistently applied around the country, but there is flexibility within. Um, so that we can exercise sound judgment, and we hope practitioners will as well, and we certainly want to work with practitioners in ensuring that they, they materially comply with the guidelines because they have to be consistently applied. We think, the guidelines, um, we think the guidelines are reasonable and have enough flexibility so that really all of the, the major law firms should, without, uh, without terribly much... Uh, a trouble at least after initially filing an application and, and doing those new disclosures uh, should find the system to be uh, actually more efficient going forward. And you brought up um, the fee examiner or, or free committee, and I know from prior discussions that we've had that you are a big fan of this. Could you just sort of take the audience through how that process works, who they report to, and, and um, what they're looking for? 
Well, fee examiners would, would have to be the creation of a, of a court order. And what we say in the guidelines is that we will, we will propose such court orders in, in, in many cases. It should be much more the norm than now. So fee examiners are, in essence, independent reviewers who should file reports in public filings with the results of their review of the reasonableness of fees and technical compliance with fee statute and rules. Now, in the past, I know there's been sometimes concerns that fee auditing firms have an incentive to find reductions, and, and, and there's sometimes controversy over, over that. And, and, and I think that uh, fee auditors serve a purpose. The fee examinations we're suggesting in the guidelines go beyond that, though, um, because the fee examiners would also go not just to technical objections but to the but to the substance. Now, we have some fee examiners. We've proposed some and successfully have put in place fee examiners in a number of leading cases uh, uh, recently, and I really don't hear much, uh, uh, much concern about, about those, those fee examinations. Uh, the, the fee examiners generally are, should be bankruptcy experts who can delve not only, as I say, into the technical side of things, such as duplication, overstaffing, but also can make the more sophisticated judgments on overall reasonableness of fees. In the General Motors case, for example, the fee examiner, Brady Williamson, uh, is a sophisticated practitioner and his review not only identified technical issues, but raised important and sophisticated issues for resolution, such as um, a proof required to justify rate increases during the case, the appropriateness of charging fees on fees, that is, charging fees in, con in connection with contesting applications uh, to the professional's own fee application. So I, I think that the, the fee examinations that we're calling for um, have not been used all that often in the past. They, we've tried to use them more often, propose them successfully uh, in some recent cases where we've had some very, very good results, and we think that that, that practice should be uh, expanded. Moving on to the USTP enforcement role, we talked a little about, bit about and you, and you commented on the program taking a more robust enforcement role. And... Um, I believe it was the topic of an ABI great debate and commentary uh, in the pages of the ABI journal. Why do you think there's a need for enhanced enforcement of the bankruptcy laws? Well, well, 25 years ago, Congress recognized the need for a national enforcement agency, the United States Trustee Program, to ensure the statute's upheld as well as to carry out a variety of, of administrative responsibilities. Now, like any other enforcement agency, we do not we do not seek to strictly enforce 100% of the time all violations. It's just impossible to do that. The facts and circumstances of each case need to be evaluated. Prosecutorial discretion is necessary, and we try to exercise that. And that prosecutorial discretion, which belongs to the executive branch, and we're in the executive branch, um, and that's our duty. And, but once a case is brought, then it's up to the court to adjudicate that case according to the bankruptcy code. So not every violation is going to lead to an enforcement action. We need to be selective. But when the action is brought, then, then it needs to be decided. Now, why is it so important, and why did Congress see it as so important for there to be a national enforcement agency? I would suggest bankruptcy is so different from most civil litigation. There's a multiplicity of interests involved in a case. Not all parties have the same leverage in a case. It, make, it is, in so many material respects, different from ordinary civil litigation and two-party disputes. Now, sometimes there are two-party disputes in bankruptcy cases, and we seldom would find a need to become involved uh, in those. We try to avoid those. But where there are broader uh, uh, interests involved, um, then, then we will intervene, and uh, we will exercise prosecutorial discretion in bringing appropriate cases to vindicate the public interest, the integrity of the, of the uh, of the statute, and in some cases where a party such as a consumer is in no position to raise an issue which we believe is a systemic violation of the code, uh, will intervene and, and, and the beneficiary may be that individual, uh, that individual debtor. Hey, and Clifton, does it surprise you there's so much interest of late in uh, the enforcement activity? I think we've taken on in recent years more consequential matters than, than ever before. Not that we weren't always taking on consequential matters, but I think we may be taking on, 
on more of them. You know, the 1978 Code made a major stride forward in professionalizing the practice of bankruptcy. And among so many other changes and reforms, bankruptcy judges were put in a more elevated position so they could act like judges outside of bankruptcy by deciding matters brought before them without having to administer and manage the case. So, so given that, there's more of a premium on an enforcement agency. Now, our enforcement actions, which are pretty traditional kinds of actions by an executive branch agency, I think tend to create more anxiety in the bankruptcy system because bankruptcy cases move so fast and deal-making is so often a, a virtue. And the role of the U.S. trustee sometimes is to put a break on those proceedings until parties can figure out a way to accomplish their goals within the parameters set in statute. So in large and small cases alike, we need to be sure the law is followed. And, uh, and I understand bankruptcy uh, a practice uh, uh, sometimes requires quick decision-making, and when those decisions are made outside of the parameters of the code, we often uh, have, to, have to step in either to prevent an abuse uh, or to ensure that, uh, that the code is, uh, is not going to be routinely uh, disrespected. So we think that our enforcement role is, uh, is, 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 is very important. We think it, it also uh, is, is essential for the system. But I can see that given the nature of bankruptcy practice, that the kinds of enforcement actions uh, we bring, um, uh, why sometimes parties uh, wish, wish we didn't. When shortcuts are taken, uh, not all shortcuts uh, should, should be allowed, so we sometimes need to bring those cases to the court's attention for the court's adjudication. But by and large, I think professionals, judges, and the U.S. trustees, we're all trying to do our job for the benefit of this, the bankruptcy system and the American economy. But uh, where we have to be a fly in the ointment, we're, uh, we're, we, we will be that. We will enforce the statute. Now, Cliff, what are the major management challenges uh, you think are facing the program? Well, right now, we are in a period of diminishing resources. We've lost about 8% of our staff over the past three years and are in the process of consolidating three field offices into other offices within close geographic proximity. So without question, these are, these are lean financial times that require us to think even more creatively and more strategically about ways to leverage our resources and to find new and efficient ways to do our business. I think I said in the annual report something to the effect that uh, uh, that it is, however, the people, the talented and dedicated employees of the U.S. trustee program who we have relied upon foremost to carry out our mission uh, for a quarter of a century. And that's going to continue to be, be the case. So there's no doubt in my mind that we have the management challenge of diminishing resources, but that we're going to be able to continue to be successful despite the fiscal challenges because of the, because of the quality and dedication of, of, of our people. Now, of course, in these kinds of difficult budget times, uh, we also appreciate uh, the, uh, the, uh, the necessity to efficiently be able to communicate with the rest of the bankruptcy community, and that makes us appreciate even more uh, the American Bankruptcy Institute, because although we cannot travel as much to participate in professional gatherings as, uh, as it, we have been able to do it sometimes in the past, we do continue to speak at some of the major meetings of, of the ABI and try to publish regularly in the ABI journal as well as in other professional publications. So that allows us to communicate with the bankruptcy community uh, efficiently about what we're doing and also to learn directly from practitioners in the trenches what additional ways we can add value to the system. So ABI is a, a, a large organization representative of the bankruptcy community, so we certainly uh, value our relationship with the ABI uh, enormously, especially in, in, in more uh, uh, stringent uh, economic times. Well, I think I can speak for the ABI, Cliff, in thanking you and, and appreciating uh, your time today to talk about these really important topics with us. Um, one last question is, what do you hope to report in next year's 25th anniversary celebration. You're right. Report. It will be. The next annual report will be our 25th anniversary report, and it will be a celebration. Uh, and I hope that next year it's going to show uh, continued progress in all of the areas outlined in the, uh, in the 2012 uh, report. And before we conclude, I'd, I'd like to really express, again, admiration for my 
but it is coming. It is this is the year of the 25th anniversary. My admiration for my past uh, colleagues who've who've uh, retired or gone on, such as yourself, Kelly, to uh, to the private uh, sector and and into my present uh, colleagues. Uh, some of my colleagues have been with the program for the entire 25 years, and even before that, during the years we were a pilot program, they were pioneers who helped us establish our structure, our initial priorities. Uh, and it's not easy uh, always now uh, to serve uh, uh, in government. There are many challenges, and, and the program needs to be agile to meet new goals and exhibit professionalism and good judgment. And I, I think the people in the program are doing that and operate as a team. So I know we're never going to please everyone in the bankruptcy system uh, all the time. We are created by Congress to act independently and in the public interest. That's what we uh, try to do, and I am incredibly fortunate that we have uh, so many uh, highly dedicated uh, public servants in the program that are achieving our mission for the, uh, for the system and the larger American economy. Well, Cliff, um, we, we appreciate that. We appreciate the opportunity to work with you and your staff. Um, we're going to look forward to next year's report. Um, we're going to try to track it against Warren Buffett, like we talked about earlier. But I think you've, you've started tweeting the trustee message. You could reach maybe a completely new audience. Just another suggestion. I'm just full of ideas for you today. I, I take a lot of your suggestions, Kelly, but tweeting may not be one of them. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, listen, I'd like to thank you for this really informative discussion and wish you the best of luck with uh, pursuing your 2013 initiatives and, of course, with the Red Sox. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you, Kelly, for your thoughtful and thorough questioning. Um, and Cliff, it's clear that you and your department have been very busy this year and you have no intentions of slowing down in the next 25 years. So um, thank you again for spending time with us today. And as Cliff mentioned, if you want a full copy of the U.S. Trustee Program's annual report, as well as the fee guidelines, the new Chapter 11 fee guidelines, you can find them at www.justice.gov UST. And we thank our audience for joining us for this podcast. You can hear a download over 130 ABI podcasts at news.abi.org backslash podcast. From the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Amy Quackenboss. Thank you for listening and have a great day.